Hi and welcome to episode 52 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Now I hope you've all slept well, feeling fresh and revived for this podcast which is going to be um, all about sleep and performance and recovery and uh, and so on. So uh, with me today from um, a very long distance um, but um, is actually a bit more local which you'll guess from his accent is Dr John Bartlett um, who's over in Australia. Um, John can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and your background and uh, sort of your research interests? Yeah absolutely. Um, obviously I came from Liverpool John Moores um, where I did my undergraduate degree, my PhD, and my postdoc um, with with James Morton, um, where I focused on looking at endurance adaptations at the muscle level and the impact of carbohydrate availability. Um, alongside that, I was able to work for Liverpool Football Club and uh, the England national fo- football teams at, at the youth level um, before making my way over to, to Melbourne in Australia. Um, where I now reside with the Western Bulldogs AFL team and Victoria University um, with almost a 50-50 research practitioner remit. Yeah, now that's, that's great. And that's, as we were just talking offline, one of the things that I like about a lot of the, the guest experts that come onto this podcast is we are able to talk about the science. Um, you know, and you guys are, are you know, serious scientists, but... Many of you, and you are a good example of this, are also people who are applying this into practice. And there seems to be a strong sort of movement in um, sports science research that isn't just about mechanisms. It's also about, you know, providing knowledge that helps to inform practice. And um, uh, again, someone who's from Liverpool, John Moores, we had a lot of guests from Liverpool, John Moores, um, uh, notably uh, Graham Close and, and uh, James Morton, of course. Um, but um, I came across you, well, I've read a number of your papers, but my very last podcast was with Professor John Hawley, and we were talking about carbohydrate availability um, yep. and uh, training adaptations and so on. And uh, actually, one, one of the uh, the best reviews or pretty much the best review out there is the one that you actually, um, I think you were the lead author of, or at least you were one of the co-authors oh, yeah. of, of yeah. that paper. Um, but in, in sort of going down this, this path of trying to identify the sort of the latest cutting edge science in exercise physiology and exercise science, um, clearly I have my own sort of interests because I'm a performance nutritionist primarily. Um, so I, I sort of that explains my obsessions in uh, nutrition um, and its influences on performance and recovery. But what, there is one nutrient, if you can call it a nutrient, that exists out there, um, which often is is not so readily discussed, uh, particularly in its relationship to health and performance. But there is an emerging growth of science, um, which is sleep. And, and I call it a nutrient because I'm not sure how else to refer to sleep. Um, but I know as a practitioner myself, and I work a lot with athletes, like for example, I work with the Great Britain fencing team who travel a hell of a lot. And those guys definitely would rank sleep at the top end 
um, of the things that they at least subjectively feel um, has a huge impact on their on their performance. And um, in reading a variety of reviews that you actually provided me, I could see that coming up quite a bit. So anyway, by way of introduction to this sort of podcast on sleep science and performance, could you give us a bit of background as to why you have become interested in, in this particular area? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think you've alluded to it already, it's, it's, an, it's an emerging theme, um, and considering we're now in, what, 2015, it's, it's crazy to think there's probably, I think, good papers that provide recommendations for athletes, there's probably less than 40 in total. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a really hot topic for, for, for knowledge to be created almost, to really... Um, help athletes and I think every athlete that you speak to whether it's football in the UK whether it's football in Australia or if it's team sports or individual pursuit sports um, at some point they'll travel um, and it's and a lot of the time they're also competing at home so um, and with that sleep is actually something that you have to do in order to function as a normal human being um, without it you probably ended up not being around too long. So, um, also, I was interested in nutrition before, and I, I still am. It's still a major component of my research um, and how it can impact on training and competition. Um, but also, with nutrition, like sleep, they're, they're both um, fundamental to to normal life. Um, so, uh, there's a lot of people that will research cold immersion, massage all these different recovery tools and ways to try and modulate an, adapt, an adaptive response. Um, but really, I think the two fundamentals, i.e. nutrition and sleep, we still don't know enough about, and um, one, how the mechanisms work in terms of governing the response. Um, and if we can understand the mechanisms, then we can inform practice better um, and help athletes better. So with that, with athletes reporting on a daily basis that sleep poorly, um, actually doesn't provide us any information whatsoever um, because we don't know why, how, what, where. Um, so if I'm being honest, I think the, the real reason for getting into the area of sleep and training and performance is to try and help athletes un understand it a bit better and if we can improve our own knowledge um, of that then we should be able to impart that to the athletes and help them improve performance. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's fascinating and um, I've, you know, I think we all have a personal interest in this because I, I doubt there's a single listener that is listening to this podcast who hasn't at some point, if not regularly, has imperfect sleep. Um, and we all, you know, you can tell, you just get up in the morning and you just, you can see people looking tired, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're hooked up to the caffeine drip. Um, we we know that it influences decision making. We know, you know, that it drives behaviour. Um, you know, if we reflect back on a good day or a bad day, we usually will link that somehow to whether or not we had a good night's sleep. And I I think having I mean, especially preparing for this podcast with you and reading a lot more of the literature that's out there, it's absolutely blown me away. I mean, as you say, you know, we don't know a lot, but what we do know is is really mind blowing in terms of 
yes, there's this link between sort of sleep deprivation and its impact on mood and behaviour, but it's this link between sleep and, and biology or physiology. And that, I mean, we've said this in other podcasts, and we've had various experts that have made some links here where loosely we'll, you know, if we call it, or the idea behind this being that, that you know, you can't think about physiology or biology without psychology because there's a, an intimate relationship between them. But to, to see that there is actually an influence, on, you know, from sleep quality on, for example, you know, at the molecular level is mind-boggling. And I know that you guys are only just starting to learn about this stuff, but just because I think I'm liable to go off on all kinds of tangents here. Why, you know, why don't we sort of break this down a bit then and, and go, well, what are the theoretical components of sleep, if you, if you can tell us about that? I mean, what, you know, what is sleep? Um, I think in a nutshell, if, we, if you scrape it back to its, to its bare bones, it's, it's obviously um, it's to restore normal function. So obviously over time, whether it's an hour, 12 hours, 20 hours or whatever, you become tired and you need to restore normal physiological function. Um, so within that, there's then four stages, uh, stage one, two, three and four. Um, of which stage three is made up of slow wave sleep. And this might be non-REM sleep versus REM sleep. And getting different amounts of time within those stages will dictate um, on your level of recovery, if you like, on different aspects of physiology. So we know that um, cognitive function, physiological function, metabolism, um, hormonal regulation, all these things are impacted by either your amount of sleep gain or your amount of sleep lost. Um, and there's a lot of, um, I guess, studies that have adopted a really extreme model of sleep loss or sleep deprivation to basically show that sleep is indeed crucial to normal physiological function. So if you consider what athletes are and, and the physical makeup of what athletes are and the stresses that they undergo on a daily basis, by not obtaining the right amount of sleep is likely to impact on their daily performance, whether it's in training or competition. Um, from both a cognitive function and a, a physiological function. And if, you, if your sport is a, a highly cognitive loaded sport, um, then you're going to be negatively impacted um, just as much as those that have a huge physiological function or capacity and components to, to the sport. Um, so if, if, if we look at it in that regard um, and just get obtaining the right amount of sleep or enough sleep within those stages to just achieve normal function, then there's also a, a, an even greater requirement for athletes. So, you know, we use the word normal. Um, now, my idea of a good night's sleep is different from someone else's. And, and I guess th there's a difference between quantity and quality when it comes to our observation of, of sleep and sleep quality. I mean, I, I think and we all know this. I know, like, you know, I seem to do pretty well on six or seven hours of sleep, but I know some people who wouldn't be able to function on that much sleep, whereas someone else um, needs, 
um, 10 hours of sleep um, to feel absolutely fantastic. Whereas if, and it doesn't happen often, but if I have 10 hours of sleep, I actually feel pretty bad. So what, I mean, you know, what is, what, I mean, how would we quantify quantity and quality of, of sleep? Um, I think you need, really need to script back again to the individual level. Um, and there's no, there's no one size fits all in the same way that we plan um, nutrition plans for, for athletes or for, for the general public. Um, we periodise training specifically to, to the goals of that individual. What we probably need to do is individualise and periodise sleep according to that individual. Um, and the only way by doing that is actually obtaining what their normal routine is like. So, for example, you can put a sleep watch or a wrist actigraphy watch on, on whoever it might be um, and attain seven nights of sleep where you try and include a training day, a competition day, a rest day, um, a high training day, a low training day. Um, so you're taking in all aspects of, of the, the daily forms, if you like, um, and, and from that you'll be able to, be able to obtain some what, what you might want to call baseline information. So they might just get they might be in bed for eight hours a night, um, but they only obtain seven hours of sleep, um, which then may say it's eighty five percent sleep efficiency. Um, then you might also be able to obtain some um, sleep onset latency information in terms of how long it takes to get to sleep how often they wake during the night, um, the movements associated with when they're asleep. Um, so from this, you can build up a, a, a generalized picture of what their normal normal sleep patterns might, might be, and then start to try and infer some, some, I wouldn't say recommendations, but try and work off uh, sleep hygiene protocols just to try and affect behavior uh, just initially. And I think that's probably what we've tried to incorporate so far um, the last six months we, with the team we work for um, it's just trying to impact on, on normal behavior um, because we don't actually know what an athlete needs yeah. um, everybody says you need between seven and nine hours sleep well seven to nine hours is, that's two hours is a big difference oh, yeah. so if I got nine versus seven hours I feel extremely different um, and it'd be the same for, for, for athletes and um, I think if, if we if we go back to that do, do we know what is normal probably not um, so there's there's a lot of descriptive studies emerging now and, and certainly from uh, Charlie Sargent's group in, in Adelaide uh, Shona Halson um, at the AIS um, has done so I know Jonathan Leader has, has done some in the UK um, there's more and more emerging evidence in some sports, but the sample size is re relatively small. So um, that's really why you need to, whoever you're, you're analysing, you really, really need to go down to the individual level hmm. and treat them as individuals and not group this information together. Yeah, I, I mean, no doubt it's difficult. Um, I think, you know, if we're talking about nutritional strategies, there's, there's you know, even that those studies are difficult, of course, but you know you have some element of control you can sort of predict that if you do such and such that that person will actually be able to do that strategy the problem with sleep and 
this is something every listener is going to understand this one is is that I could say I'm going to go to bed at 11 tonight and even if I do go to bed at 11 I may or may not fall asleep at 11 or 11 30 I I may I may fall asleep straight away or I may fall asleep an hour later so it becomes very difficult doesn't it to from a prescriptive point of view um, say right I want you to go to bed at x time and get eight hours of sleep because you know you you know you can tell someone to eat two eggs and they can eat two eggs but we have considerably less control over the actual amount of of sleep that we're going to get i mean why why is it so difficult to you know to to get eight hours or seven hours uh, over and above obviously the parameters of you know work and travel and so on but if if we go to bed shut our eyes what, why you know why is it we just don't suddenly sleep you know what are the what are the issues at hand with that I think there's a, a degree of trainability with regard to um, what what your body thinks is normal so if you go to bed every night at half past ten and you set your alarm at six it becomes routine mm. so the, the circadian rhythm and you start training your, your circadian clock to to tie in with those times um, obviously, from a from a, a biological standpoint, the circadian rhythm goes by light and dark cycles, and, and so on. But you can train your body if if you had a lights on from twelve to six at night, but it was pitch black from midday through to six p.m. Over time, you'll probably be able to train yourself, which is why jet lag and how you adapt to jet lag um, through those light dark cycles. So. Um, that trainability, I reckon, uh, has a huge impact. Um, but in terms of um, being able to actually obtain more sleep, I think I think what a major issue is, and I think this is particularly in sport, is some athletes aren't aren't given the opportunity to obtain more sleep. Um, and what we've been able to um, obtain recently is information where if the athletes have provided the opportunities to obtain an extra hour in the morning they actually take it and they actually do increase their sleep from seven hours to eight hours um, and that's particularly pertinent around competition okay so that so that's really interesting that you say that sleep is trainable and that's exciting too because it means that someone isn't just a bad sleeper there is an opportunity to retrain that um, but I mean how much of I mean I well I kind of know the answer to this uh, but the 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 idea that it's more sort of habit and behavior led or is it more physiological um, for most people where, where would you see that you know being the bigger influence I think I think your outside influences have a major impact on on how much you obtain um, and the quality you obtain. So if you have two young kids under the age of two, they'll have a major impact on your ability to have a, an, an undisturbed night of sleep. Um, so that if that continues for two years because the kids are growing up, then what becomes normal is probably having a disturbed sleep that you become actually accustomed to it. Mm. Um, so I would probably say your outside influences um, and I know, but I, well, I worked quite late tonight, maybe half nine, ten p.m. 
I'll have an hour of TV and then I'll, I'll, I'll go straight to sleep and I'll probably sleep right through mm. to half, half five, six. Um, but then at the weekend, I might, where, where we have a match and I, I struggle to switch off after a match. Obviously, I don't play, but I have a, a big match day role, so but even I struggle to switch off. So, um, it's again, it's another outside influence um, that's hard to hard to control, um, and what, you have to train yourself almost to to try and positively alter those behaviours. So, you just made me think of something um, in a, another podcast that I do with Dr. Ben Jones on hydration. Um, one of the things that I learned from that was um, if you're dehydrated, mildly dehydrated on a regular basis, actually your body adapts to that and you can perform perfectly well in a mildly dehydrated state. Whereas if you're more acutely dehydrated, i.e. it's particularly unusual to be in that state, then it's more likely to have an impact. It, it, do you think that's the same sort of thing with sleep? Um, if If we're used to frequent sleep disturbances like you say having kids under the age of two or or whatever um that is something to a certain extent you adjust to um, and whilst you you may not have perfect performance you're less likely to be negatively impacted than someone who normally gets a good night's sleep but then suddenly has a really bad night or two um do, is there anything in that you think oh, i think so um I think there's a conscious decision as well. If you, if you do have something that's out, out of the ordinary that you're not used to, is you try and recover from that poor night's sleep with su- su- what we're starting to term supplemental sleep. Mm. So whether that's obtained with a nap in the afternoon of the following day, or you go to bed earlier the following night, or you actually sleep in longer the following morning. Um, I think if, if something occurs out of the ordinary that then you think, oh, I had a bad night's sleep last night, or I didn't get enough hours sleep. Um, you actually consciously try and rectify that following. And again, that's something else we've, we've observed is when these players on, on the night of a match where they can't sleep because of hormone dysregulation and what happens during a game with adrenaline and so on, where they can only get five and a half, six hours even when they're given the opportunity to get more, what they actually do then for the next two or three nights is actually obtain anything from eight, eight and a half to nine hours um, with a with a sleep opportunity of 10 hours. So I think when something, like I say, something out of the ordinary occurs, the individual will consciously try and rectify that through whether it's a sleep extension or, or, or a napping acute intervention. Yeah. That's really interesting, and I know that there isn't really much research on this, <clears throat> so either for your group or someone listening, this is some areas that we could do with some studies on, but in the same way that we're now looking at the importance of assessing energy balance from a sort of a 24-hour basis as opposed to a snippet of a day or even the whole week um, in the context of, say, for example, body composition... I guess the same idea is for sleep rather than saying right well just because yesterday I had five hours and then I have my regular six hours today 
does not mean that I'm suddenly back to normal. It could well mean that I really should try and get a bit extra sleep for the the next day or two through supplementary sleeping strategies like napping or, or whatever to bring my sort of weekly total or my you know my whatever time period we want to refer to. Do you think that there's a sort of a cumulative impact of 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 sleep disturbance um, over a period of time, um, say a week, um, even if if you know one you know you, you, you have sort of a decent night's sleep in it's not it's not overcompensating but it's just back to normal. Do you think that there's still some sort of deficit from the day before? Yeah, I see I, I think I think you're spot on with what you say there, and the, there is a study out there, and I, I forget the, the author's names now. But basically, what they tried to do was induce a sleep deficit or sleep debt in in individuals, where so they restricted them for a period of however many nights it was. And what they did then was then gave them the opportunity to sleep as much as they possibly could for the next, I think it might have been ten to fourteen nights. And over those recovery night's sleeps, what, what happened was they would get, say, 14 hours night one, 13 hours night two, 10 hours night three, and it gradually, slowly crept back into their, their normal, what you'd say, whatever, seven to eight to nine hours a night. So there almost is like this, um, uh, this sleep debt thing that when you do induce or lose a lot of sleep, you can actually repay it back with getting supplementary sleep at a later time. Until then, it's repaid, and then you just go back to normal. So, I think there's only one study that has really done that well. Um, and like I say, I, I forget the, the the author's name now. But um, we're, we're particularly interested in interventions to try and induce improvements in sleep, obtain more sleep, um, and actually speed up the recovery process following competition um, and that, that's particularly pertinent from a from a hormonal regulation point of view and the way this that can then signal to the muscle to recover not only from a from a protein growth point of view but also from like endurance adaptations um, and that, that, that skeletal muscle remodeling process so we're, we're going to start going down that way of how we can use sleep to actually modulate a training adaptation. Brilliant. Can't wait for your conclusions and findings on that. So, okay, so let, 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 let's get a little bit deeper then into the actual effects of sleep loss on exercise performance, um, physiology and, and also cognitive responses. So, I mean, what, what do we know so far about the impact of, of sleep loss on actual exercise performance? Um, I, I think there's some emerging evidence to show that um, there's certainly a, a cognitive um, disadvantage when you when you regularly sleep. Um, sleep loss on physical performance um, from an acute sense, if, if you lost sleep for one night, two nights, you, the impact isn't that great. Um, when you start to accumulate that sleep loss, then you may actually get a reduction in performance. Um, particularly from an anaerobic standpoint, there's not much difference between 
obtaining however many hours you want compared to getting no sleep at all. Um, and that's certainly from an acute perspective. So um, there's certainly a huge gap in literature there to really uh, put some some markers down and say, yeah, when you do lose this amount of sleep, this is going to impact on this type of physical performance. Um, and I can't really comment too much on the cognitive aspect because that's that's not really my um, yeah, sure. area of expertise, and it's, yeah, it's not something I probably won't I won't go down too far. But um, there is one study in uh, 2011 by by someone called Sherry Ma uh, in the States. And what they did is they, they provided the bas basketball players with a um, number of weeks with a, an opportunity to obtain 10 hours a night of sleep. Um, and they're actually able to improve shoot accuracy. Um, so obviously that's probably from a cognitive standpoint um, and skill acquisition and also um, physical performance. So it, it looks as if the more you get and the more opportunity you get to obtain more is you have that opportunity to, to improve performance. So I guess what, I, and I'm thinking about this as a practitioner and what I might want to say to my fellow um, coaches and sports medicine team and my athletes that if they are concerned about having had a bad night's sleep, it's quite nice to have some evidence there to, to say, look, you know, whilst you feel a bit crappy, you know, there has been some research done on this and it shows that at, at least on sort of temporary sleep deprivation, there doesn't appear to be too much impact on performance. Now, that in itself is quite a useful tool from a, even if it's just a placebo effect, you know, helping our athletes not feel that they're, you know, all their work's going to go out the window because they didn't sleep that well the night before. I think it's nice to know that, that that isn't necessarily the case, which, given that a fair amount of this is surely um, psychological as well, you know, there's sort of perceived exertion and our sort of more spot psychology components here. You know, our, our, our perceptions of our ability to perform well maybe negatively um, projected, if you like, just because of a bad night's sleep and, and our assumption that that's going to affect our performance. So, you know, I think even until we do know the full answer to that, it's still a useful thing to know that, you know, you just said that that it doesn't necessarily have to in fact impact performance unless it's something that's happening frequently. Yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. And I think what, what, I, what we've seen here and I think other groups have also shown that the self-reported sleep quality doesn't actually um, relate well with the sleep uh, objective measures collected through whether it's wrist actigraphy or through polysonography. Um, so it's really a case of are, are the athletes educated on what good sleep is? Um, is so for example, is tossing turning in the night is that actually telling you that it's a poor night's sleep and you're wide awake and you can't sleep? Or is it just an actual, that's a normal response for you? And um, we've put watches on, on some of our boys that regularly report sleep, uh, poor sleep. And they're actually obtaining seven and a half, eight hours a night. Um, and it looks as if it's understood. So they've got minimal wake bouts. So then 
that almost it doesn't doesn't concern me to the point that when they do report poor sleep that it's not true what what it's doing is it's ed educating the player on actually what might be normal for them hmm. so if we bring this away from um, from that a little bit and talk a bit more about what we know or don't know about the impact of sleep um, on recovery and immune function and that sort of thing which obviously is you know intuitively we feel better when we've had a good night's sleep you know whether or not that translates to improved recovery and or immune health is is potentially another matter I mean what do we what do we know about that well, for, for me, what, one of the biggest things is that sleep debt or sleep loss, it, it results in um, increases in catabolic hormones and decreases in anabolic hormones. So, you, like your corticosteroid and your cortisols, they're increased, um, and the likes of testosterone, growth hormone, and IGF-1 are all decreased. Now, if you consider in the context of an athlete, they undergo a two-hour competition bout or a, a really high training session where recovery is fundamental to then performing in the next subsequent bouts or whatever. Um, it would it's logical to assume that their recovery process at the muscle level is highly compromised, um, and there is actually some evidence to suggest that the likes of um, the PI3K and the AKT pathway, which obviously signals to mTOR, is actually dysregulated through the IGF-1 system, um, and the the ubiquitin proteasome pathways, which obviously re regulates protein degradation and breakdown, actually increase. So, what actually might be happening from a from a you can call it recovery standpoint, or you might even want to call it training adaptation, is that Obtaining less sleep or um, reduced amount of sleep, you may actually be not recovering fully, um, and then there's this knock-on effect of then you go into your subsequent bout of exercise and so on and so on, and then that leads to immune dysfunction, um, carbohydrate um, metabolism is affected. From a from a glucose tolerance perspective, and then this then also have a knock-on effect to body weight, body composition, um, and so on and so on. So, yeah. I think when when you do unpick it in that regard, it it is a it's a fundamental um, aspect of athlete preparation, and it probably needs to be treated as something probably at the forefront of their um, approach to, to preparedness for, for training and, and, and performing. Yeah, I, I think I don't think anyone's going to doubt that sleep is it, it's not an optimization issue. It's a foundational issue. It, it's it's at it's at the forefront, as you say, to the many things that we want to see improvements in, or or at least a quality sleep, quality training, quality rest, quality recovery, quality nutrition, and of uh, you know, and obviously. There's a integration between all of these factors, and um, the one that I I feel that's interesting as a nutritionist is the fact that sleep affects mood response um, because mood 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 state 
sorry, is something that profoundly influences people's choices. Um, it affects whether or not someone feels like training. It affects, you know, what they're going to eat, um, the likelihood that they're going to have coffee or sugar or, or something to pick them up, the, the likelihood that they're going to eat comfort foods. Obviously, all these things translate through to body composition and, and health generally. So since sleep has such a powerful impact on that. But on the other, on the other way around, food, just to bring this into nutrition quickly, food obviously has an impact on sleep too. Um, and I think most of us, you know, we know that if you eat stimulant, eat or drink stimulants, uh, caffeine, for example, uh, particularly in the later portions of the day is possibly going to keep you stimulated and increase catecholamine production and all that stuff probably won't translate to a decent night's sleep. Alcohol has a certain impact. Um, but food, food specifically, uh, where, you know, if you haven't eaten, if there are certain foods you've eaten can all have an impact. But ha- let's look at this a different way. How about how these things can improve sleep? And I know that protein and carbohydrates seem to have some sort of potential impact on sleep from a strategic point of view. And this is sort of a, a crossover from our previous podcasts on things like carbohydrate periodization for performance. But how about the usage of these of these foods, these macronutrients, to optimize sleep? Is, is there anything there that you feel are worth discussing? Um, obviously, that, that there is. Um, to what point it really um, modulates sleep the point where you, you, you'd say, well, I had a really not good night's sleep last night because I had X, Y, and Z until you get 10 p.m. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if, if we can make those associations purely yet. Um, there is evidence to suggest that carbohydrate does help with creating signals to release the serotonin and so on to go to sleep. And there's actually, I read one or two things that actually protein can actually inhibit that serotonin release um, and prevent you from dropping off almost, well, immediately compared to what carbohydrate can do. So if you look at that in that regard, then it's actually, hmm, perhaps I should have carbohydrate for bed and not protein, but then you actually then flip it on the other side and you think, well, if I have too much carbohydrate, I'm going to bed. When, when you're not using carbohydrate, you get the, the insulin spike, it suppresses lipolysis, you then start storing that carbohydrate as fat. Um, and then you look at Luke Van Loon's papers where they um, supplement protein for bed. Um, and you get in increases in strength. You get increases in muscle mass when you obviously follow training. Um, then the two things actually completely oppose each other. So I think what I have to be, be there is just sensible in what's, what's adequate as opposed to going, right, I need a, a big meal tonight because I know it helps me sleep. But then in the grand scheme of things, it will actually alter body composition. Um, and actually, just touching on body composition, a, a really interesting study, um, not uh, only a couple of years ago, really, they basically looked at what happens when you, when you restrict calorie intake. So you go on a low-calorie diet to induce um, weight loss. But what they did is they compared that in a model of sleep restriction versus normal sleep. So five and a half hours 
versus eight hours a night. And despite these two groups losing both exactly the same amount of weight or mass per se, the ones that only obtained five and a half hours actually lost double the amount of muscle mass, whereas those with eight hours a night lost double the amount of fat mass. So when you look at it that way, sleep actually may have distinct regulatory mechanisms that determine body composition um, when, when even in a, a, a calorie restricted diet. So I, for me, I wouldn't put any recommendations down so you should have carbohydrate for bed or you shouldn't have protein or whatever. I think you just have to be sensible whatever your personal goals are um, and then you do what is most appropriate. So it might be eight hours a night's sleep and if you're trying to lose weight, it might be a case of, well, you need extra protein before bed. Right. Yeah. Well, in almost any conversation, it, that having more protein appears to be a good thing, doesn't it? But, um, and we've explored that on many podcasts uh, before. But, uh, you know, I, I guess we, we shouldn't be having this conversation without getting into some more practical sides to this. So, I, you know, th- th- this is a, an emerging topic. There are a number of papers and reviews, and we can direct readers um, uh, to, to look at those, uh, listeners to, to look at those reviews and papers and so on. But one thing that, that sort of crops up when we talk about this is this concept of sleep hygiene. Um, I find that interesting. And, uh, you know, with the emergence of technologies, people go into bed with their digital devices, uh, iPads, watching TV in bed, um, you know, blackout curtains, blah, blah, blah. I mean, what, you know, could you maybe give us a better idea what we mean by sleep hygiene and then we can sort of move into some practical recommendations perhaps? Yeah, I think you alluded to to a handful of them then. Um, I mean, just good uh, a good environment in order to induce good sleep so like you say a, a dark room um thermo neutral t- temperature um a stuff that sounds clean sheets helps mm. um pillows that that actually allow you your head and your neck to be in a neutral position um you don't want high pillows where you then wake up straining your neck um you don't want pillows too low where your your head's fallen lower than what it should be um the technology thing not having your phone next to your bed having it in a different room um not having say a a tv in in the room where you know when you turn your tv off and you still got the red light um that's suggested to to actually disturb sleep somewhat so i think you look at those things and um you can talk about and, and recommend to to athletes to to anybody to try and improve that. But I think realistically, everybody's going to have a mobile phone on their bedside table when they go to sleep. Um, that's that's just what society is now. Everybody has a flick through Twitter or flick on Facebook or they check their emails before they go to bed. Um, so realistically, you, you can provide these recommendations. Um, you can help. Um, anybody who to to try and get better sleep, but ultimately they want to do it themselves as well. Um, 
And I think what what we're trying to induce with our players and, and get to get them to think about is actually different techniques such as breathing techniques, relaxation, um, actually reading books, um, doing something different to what they normally do, which is probably a little bit out there, I reckon, for, for athletes, but it, it helps them to wind down from, from the normal rigours of what, what they're used to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult at the best of times, if, especially if you've got things on your mind. Um, you know, you, you, we've many of us, I think, have done this. You wake up in the middle of the night and you're still thinking about stuff. But if you've got your mobile phone or iPad or whatever next to you and you know you go from thinking about it to quickly checking your emails and I know everyone's done that that's listening everybody does it <laughs> uh, checking checking your email or looking something up at three in the morning you know is is just not a good thing and and uh, um, I know myself that that's something that I've certainly had to ban my digital devices from my bedroom and you know, I find they creep back in after a while and then you realise, ah, that's actually probably what half the problem is. But, you know, I, I think if we're to summarise, you know, sleep is is generally considered critical, not only for health and human sort of functioning, but for athletic performance. And as we mentioned earlier, you know, in the hierarchy of things that we could be focusing on where people are constantly spending hours of their time possibly researching in the middle of the night on their iPads what supplements they should be taking but um, actually neglecting the importance of, of sleep and the multitude of impacts that can have on mood state decision making cognitive function performance and as you've pointed out even physiology and you know even even at the sort of molecular level there appears to be some impacts of this so sleep is is important so John, where do you feel future research is is heading with this? Um, I think I think a lot of the research now is is quite descriptive, uh, and we're beginning beginning to get an understanding that athletes might not be getting enough, or if they are getting enough, then how can they get more? Um, so I think in order to really move forward in this space, we need to start looking at interventions and mechanisms. So what are the mechanisms? It's it's driving for a, a good night's sleep to improve in training adaptation. Um, what's a good night's sleep driving better performance? Um, and how is obtaining more sleep or obtaining naps in the afternoon, how is that, obviously it's having um, impact in the brain. What is? What are the signals going from the brain to the muscle? Um, I, well, it could be any any tissue um, to actually improve physiological function or cognitive function. Um, and I think that that's really where the high impacts, um, and that's where the recommendations will really be born out of, um, rather than descriptive studies um, where we can only. Get information about something or someone we can actually start informing on on actual practice yeah yeah well you know I'm looking you know five ten years from now I'm sure we'll be having a lot more insight into these things but I think that it's intuitively clear to everyone that's listening that sleep is highly relevant one way or the other and I'm sure that we'll all be excited to 
learn more about that and what we can do to improve it and its consequential impact on health and performance. Um, thank you very much for your time, John, today. It's been fantastic. It's a fascinating conversation. Um, the, you know, the, the stuff that we've gotten into, I think, is relevant to every single listener uh, and not just themselves, but people that they work with. And um, really looking forward to the outcome of your research that you're going to be doing in this area. And um, we'll get you back on and talk about it, hopefully. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you. My pleasure. So um, just briefly then, um, how do people learn more about you and your uh, research? Do you have like a Twitter account or a website or, you know, what, what would be the best way to direct some people towards you and that way they can look up your papers and research and so on? Uh, so I have a Twitter account um, at John Bartlett sixty six. That's J O N, um, and also I'm on PubMed. So um, if there's any new research, I'm quite, I'm quite, I'm getting more active on on Twitter and trying to put out the new new research papers, um, whether it's my own or or somebody else's. Um, and there are also PubMed where my existing. Um, existing publications that will be uh, I, I think I'm actually on ResearchGate as well so those that are on you ResearchGate are. you are, I just started following you <laughs> so uh, oh, right, okay. uh, that's the sort of the, that's the Facebook for, for scientific geeks basically it's kind of an interesting platform that. Um, so listen John, thank you very much for your time it's been wonderful um, I, am, I haven't done it yet but I will soon have a page per podcast with uh, notes and references and papers and links and various other things to um, some of the things that we've discussed and some of the papers that we've discussed. So um, listeners uh, can look forward to that in the near-ish future. Um, But that brings us to the end of episode 52 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Um, Once again, thank you, John, for your time. Um, I, of course, am Laurel Brannock, and you can learn more about this podcast um, and the various things that we get up to at guruperformance.com. <laughs>